Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. A sea change for oceans policy. Our waters are overfished, polluted, and pushed to the brink. The Obama administration plans a new approach. How can we be smarter about using oceans without using them up? And that's very different from sort of the piecemeal, uh, one crisis management at a time that we have been doing over the last, um, actually, I guess, pretty much forever. (laughs) Plus, plastic pipes for blades, an old bike for the crank, the African teenager who built a windmill, one piece of junk at a time. The blades were spinning, and then the light bulb came on from the windmill, and the people started clapping hands. It was one of the exciting moments of my life. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth, so stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. About five years ago, we got a wake-up call with two reports describing oceans in crisis. Plummeting fish populations, coastal habitat lost to sprawl, dead zones due to nutrient runoff. It was a pretty gloomy picture. Well, now the federal government's following recommendations from those reports with what could be a sea change for ocean management. The Obama administration has proposed a comprehensive oceans policy, one that pulls together plans for fishing, offshore energy, coastal protection and shipping, jobs that are now scattered across some 20 government agencies. A task force of top marine and environmental officials is getting feedback on the plan during a listening tour along the country's coastline. Hello? Uh, if you can all uh, start to find a seat, we'll, we'll get started as soon as we... Hundreds uh, gathered for an afternoon hearing in Providence, Rhode Island. Folks in the ocean state had a lot to say about oceans management. Greg Garrett was concerned about whales. We now let our military, with reckless abandon, kill marine mammals... And if your national policy doesn't actually stop that, then you haven't done anybody any good. Fishing communities advocate Angela Sanfilippo said trying to work with the government often leads to frustration. We know that if we don't have an healthy ocean, there is no fish. We worked through these years with a lot of government agencies, but it's very difficult. The Army Corps of Engineers, the Department of the Navy, the Coast Guard, it's impossible to protect the ocean when you have to deal with so many people. Fisherman Brian Loftus worried the plan could force guys like him off the water. There's enough for everyone if they'd manage it properly, but that's not what they're trying to do. They're trying to shrink everyone down, get rid of half the boats, and then the other ones will be owned by big corporations. The small independent guy is going to go the way of the farmer. Bye-bye. The hearing went on into the night. Scientists asked for ecosystem-based management. Energy developers urged more offshore wind power. Ship captains argued against putting windmills in their way. What emerged here in the nation's smallest state was a microcosm of the issues and challenges for all of the country's coasts. The next day, I tagged along as task force members hit the beach with locals who explained what lessons Little Rhode Island might hold. 
Grover Fugate directs the state's Coastal Resource Management Council. He says the feds could learn from the planning that kept these dunes and salt ponds healthy, even amid dense population. They're trying to understand what's called marine spatial planning, which is essentially looking at the uses that are in the waterside and how they interact and how they can be planned rationally. And that's what we've been doing in Rhode Island for 26 years. And we now have this ocean planning uh, initiative that's reaching much further out than any program's done before uh, with a eye of trying to figure out where we can put renewable energy in these waters. Like a lot of East Coast states, Rhode Island is looking to its windy coast for energy. But some offshore wind projects are mired in controversy and delay. Deepwater Wind Managing Director Jim Lennard hopes his company can avoid that. Marine spatial planning, ocean zoning, is very important as we put industrial uses out into the ocean. We've got industrial fishing uses, and now we're going to have wind energy out there as well. There needs to be coordination and collaboration. So from where we're standing, where out there do you think your project might happen? The utility-scale project will be a little bit to our left, about 12 to 15 miles off the coast. There will be about 100 turbines out there spread about a half mile apart. A utility-scale wind park will power 125 to 150,000 homes every year. By going farther from shore, deep water would make its turbines less visible to beach tourists. But that could put windmills in the waters that fishermen have relied on for centuries. Lobsterman Lanny Dellinger says fishermen are trying to accommodate others. There's no alternative. I mean, the Obama administration has made it quite clear we're going to have these alternative energy projects. Now it's time to figure out how we can do both. Um, I think it's a matter of sizing the industry so that we can have a sustainable fishery and a sustainable industry to harvest those fish. Sizing the industry, though, that means some people aren't going to be fishing anymore. Uh, Absolutely. You know, there's going to be winners and losers in the process. The best thing that we can do is be part of the process early on, get a seat at the table with developers and scientists, and help to mitigate those impacts. There's a lot here for the Federal Ocean Policy Task Force members, like Jane Lubchenco, to think about. I think it's fair to say that the ocean is becoming an increasingly crowded place. We are seeing increasing uses, but also increasing conflicts. Lubchenko is a highly respected marine ecologist, and since March, she's been administrator of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I spoke with her about what she wants this new ocean policy to achieve. It's pretty clear that it's high time that we take a more thoughtful look at what combination of activities can coexist in the ocean if we want to have vibrant coastal communities and coastal economies, if we want to have the range of activities that people tell us they want from oceans, we really need to have healthy, resilient ocean and coastal ecosystems. The state of the ocean sounds so dire, and I understand you're doing good things here, but they sound very bureaucratic, um, reorganizing the flowchart sort of changes. Is, is that kind of change really going to, to do what we, we need, given how seriously bad things are with our oceans? Both of the ocean commissions recognized that there are many problems that exist in oceans, and they are only escalating with climate change. It's sort of an overlay, along with ocean acidification, on top of a lot of the other challenges. Both of them, though, pointed to... One of the underlying drivers of change is that there is no integration, there's no coordination, there's no mechanism for considering the health of the system as policies are being made. 
So part of the challenge is to uh, take a step back and say, how can we be smarter about using oceans without using them up? And that's very different from sort of the piecemeal, sector by sector, uh, one crisis management at a time that we have been doing over the last, um, actually, I guess, pretty much forever. (laughs) Is there time to... To bring some of these fisheries that are plummeting back, is there time to uh, to stop what's happening to our coral reefs, our, our coastlines? I take hope from the knowledge, from my personal experience, about uh, the resiliency that does exist in many ocean ecosystems. When they are allowed to recover, they actually can. Uh, and so I think there's actually... A a dual message here, one of urgency, but there's also great hope. So we believe that it is time to move ahead very aggressively in doing more recovery, but focusing not just on individual stocks of fish, but on the health of the system, because that, in fact, is, in the end, what will be important to people. Healthy oceans matter. You can hear a longer interview with NOAA Administrator Jane Lubchenco and read a draft of the new ocean policy at our website, LOE.org. The Oceans Task Force has two more public hearings this month in New Orleans and Cleveland. The final plan goes to the president in December. As we heard, ocean acidification is one of the looming threats marine scientists are racing to better understand. As seawater absorbs carbon dioxide, it changes the pH, and recent research indicates this acidification could come fastest in the Arctic Ocean. Oceanographer James Orr is with LSCE, the Lab for Sciences of Climate and the Environment in Paris. Dr. Orr, what's happening in the Arctic waters? The Arctic is a special case because basically it's cold, so they're naturally uh, more prone to acidification. So CO2 is a gas, and like all gases, it's more soluble in cold waters. It's not just the temperature. What sets off the Arctic from other areas is this freshwater input due to river runoff and due to sea ice melting also has an impact and actually aggravates the situation and makes it, makes it worse still. So you've done some work looking at what might happen here in the pretty near future to the Arctic. What have you learned? Within 10 years, it's expected that maybe 10% of the Arctic Ocean could become uh, corrosive to shells for mussels and, and clams. You hardly even need a model. You can just look at basic fundamental chemistry, and the waters actually uh, will dissolve aragonite, which is um, an important form of shell material. That's 10% within 10 years, and as time goes on, as CO2 continues to increase and then it gets worse. At the end of the century, virtually the entire Arctic Ocean, as well as much of the the southern ocean around Antarctica, has become corrosive to this aragonite material. Again, that's the material that the animals depend upon to build their shells. Exactly, that's the Mm shell-forming material. How does that compare to earlier projections on the rate of ocean acidification? Well, the thing is, not many people have looked at the Arctic. And also, you have to say, we have to say that ocean acidification as a, as a research area is really just in its infancy. It's only about five years ago that many scientists really started looking at this in earnest. And uh, what are the implications if within 10 years we have some portion of the Arctic Ocean so acidic that it's actually corrosive to uh, marine organisms that form shells? 
Well, that's a really good question. We don't know exactly what will happen to marine organisms. Uh, just as a purely chemical chemist's viewpoint, we could say, well, the material will dissolve. But some of these shelled organisms, such as the mollusks, the, the bivalves, the clams that are living on the bottom of the Arctic Ocean, are a very important food source, for, even for some marine mammals like walruses. They can eat 100 pounds of clams in a day, no problem. So if that food source would go away, we could expect that the walrus would have a more difficult time, uh, given other threats. At the same time, the retreat of the sea ice and it's just an added pressure on the Arctic system and on those organisms, even marine mammals. How important is the Arctic as a as a fishery uh, when you think of us in that food chain? Well, it would depend a bit on how you define the Arctic, but the Bering Sea is the richest fishery within the U.S., <laughs> so it's, it's quite important. What can we do about ocean acidification? Once an ocean becomes acidic, is there any way to, to fix it, to go back? No, there's no quick fix, unfortunately. The only solution is prevention. There are, are a lot of things that we can do to emit less CO2 and to try and maybe not emit it directly to the atmosphere, maybe to store it in geological reservoirs. But ultimately, we really have to try and limit the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. The CO2 goes up, and you can't help but have the acidity of the ocean going up along with it. It's in lockstep. Oceanographer Dr. James Orr talking to us about his work on the Arctic Ocean. Thanks for your time. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Just ahead, a clean sweep of chemical regulations. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. We've reported a lot lately on BPA in plastics, the weed killer atrazine, and the rocket fuel ingredient perchlorate. Chemicals raising health concerns and building up in our environment despite a law intended to prevent that. Now, the Environmental Protection Agency's administrator, Lisa Jackson, says the 30-year-old law governing toxic chemicals is inadequate to protect the public. She wants Congress to reform TOSCA, the Toxic Substances Control Act, to give her agency authority to move more quickly when scientists find health risks. Dr. Megan Schwartzman studies environmental health at the University of California, Berkeley. She co-authored a paper this summer titled Toward a New U.S. Chemicals Policy. Dr. Schwartzman, is that where we're headed here toward a new policy? I really think it is. You know, this is the first time in a generation that we're seeing this as an actual probability, in fact, a certainty. And there are several things that have led us in that direction. But this announcement by Administrator Jackson indicating the administration's will and goals for uh, chemicals management for the country is truly significant. Give us a sense of what EPA has been able to do under TOSCA, the the existing uh, law. What kind of progress have they made toward um, really regulating chemicals? Well, it's been over 30 years since TOSCA was passed. And in that time, EPA has issued formal rules to restrict the use of only five chemicals. So that in itself, when you're comparing five to the universe of approximately 80,000 chemicals that are understood to be in use in the U.S., that's a tremendously small number of substances that EPA has been able to act on. And it makes you wonder whether they really have the tools they need to do their job. Why is it that uh, the current system does not allow EPA to make those priorities about uh, what is and isn't uh, of chief concern? 
To make priorities, you have to have information. So to decide that one hazard is worse than another, to decide that benzene is worse than formaldehyde or is worse than asbestos, you need to know information about exactly what those hazards are. And basically, EPA has been denied that information. Without that information, they can't set priorities and can't determine what first needs to be acted on. The second thing that they lack is tools. So they lack the information, and they also lack the authority to require more information or to take action. They're uh, required to meet a burden of proof that is so high, they virtually can't meet it. You know, another complaint that we've heard a lot of on this program from scientists who are looking into health concerns of different uh, toxic chemicals is that uh, everything is is kind of done uh, assuming a standard human. But there's a a little attention paid to people who might be more sensitive to uh, the given health risks. Is that something that the EPA would take into account with these changes being proposed here? These proposed changes do make a very significant statement that's the first ever about the obligation to assess risks to sensitive subpopulations. And what we generally understand those to be are children, workers who tend to be exposed to higher amounts of chemicals than the average person, to communities who are disproportionately affected, those who live near toxic waste sites or, um, you know, what we call sort of fence line communities, also extending it to women of childbearing age, that that's a very sensitive population in terms of what the implications are of uh, chemical exposures. Now, in 2006, the European Union changed the way it does uh, chemical regulation to something called uh, REACH. How's that affected what might happen here in the U.S.? It's affected it tremendously. One thing that it does is make change here almost inevitable. Because one thing that REACH does is it applies equally to European and foreign producers of chemicals. If you want to sell your product in Europe, you have to meet these requirements. And these requirements mean that you have to provide information about that chemical to the European Chemicals Agency that based on the volume of of the chemicals that you import or produce, you have to provide increasing amounts of data. So, in fact, uh, U.S. companies who are not subject to those kinds of requirements in the U.S. are having to come into compliance with them to continue access to the world's largest market, which is Europe. I know a lot of people in the industry are moving toward or at least interested in moving toward what's called green chemistry, where they, you know, the design products, you end up with a less toxic product or less pollution in the process. Does the current regulatory system encourage that? Would these proposed changes encourage more of that? Currently in the U.S., although we don't have a lot of data requirements for introducing new chemicals, there are more data requirements for introducing a new chemical than for an old chemical. And that produces this sort of perverse incentive. It turn, it's, it's backwards. So that to do something innovative and to bring a new product to market, you actually have to provide information then just to keep using the same old product. And that really stifles innovation. I think these proposed changes are exactly what we need to encourage the innovation towards safer substances. That is, green chemistry is this process of designing out the hazard of chemicals from the beginning. We've clearly failed at mopping up the mess we make. Um, or the resources are overwhelmed, and these hazards have proved uncontainable. 
And so moving back upstream and sort of creating things that are benign by design, as they say, seems really the only sustainable solution. So the proposals for um, what new chemicals management should look like that came out of the EPA will go a long way if they're implemented toward advancing that. Dr. Megan Schwartzman is research scientist in environmental health sciences at the University of California's School of Public Health. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much. Now, getting the chemicals law updated depends on Congress. We'll keep you posted on that. For some of our reports on the chemicals of concern, go to our website, LOE.org. Coming up, saving water in the semiconductor business. But first, this note on emerging science from Annie Glosser. It's the only organ to develop in adulthood. It's the only organ to have a definite endpoint. And it could be the ticket to an abundant, cheap supply of stem cells. It is the placenta, a little-known organ with big potential. Normally, the placenta is discarded after it's completed its task of nurturing a baby. But new science questions this knee-jerk disposal. Scientists at Children's Hospital and Research Center Oakland say the placenta is an excellent source of blood stem cells that could provide every baby with a lifelong cell supply. Blood stem cells are used to treat many blood disorders, such as leukemia and sickle cell disease. After birth, a placenta can be infused with cryopreservatives frozen and stored. If stem cells are needed, the organ can be thawed and the cells extracted. The idea of harvesting blood stem cells after birth is not new. Umbilical cord blood has been collected since the 90s. While people pay around $1,000 up front for private cord blood banking, as well as about $100 a year for storage, there's also a free public program. The public program gives cord blood to those in need now, rather than saving it for a specific individual. Stem cells from the placenta are potentially even more useful than cord blood, simply because there are more of them. Three to five times more, in fact. Placenta stem cells could help treat the nearly 16,000 people with serious blood-related disorders who are currently unable to find a matching donor. So, while the focus is on mother and baby during labor, it may be wise to think twice before tossing the afterbirth tissue after birth. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Annie Glosser. Semiconductors are the building blocks of modern electronics, making our products smarter. But the way semiconductors are made isn't always so smart when it comes to water. A single manufacturing plant can use as much water as a small city. One place in Arizona is working to turn those water guzzlers into sippers. It's the Engineering Research Center for Environmentally Benign Semiconductor Manufacturing. Yeah, it's a long name. But as Lori Howell reports, the engineers and students there also have a long list of water-saving ideas. This mini-computer chip manufacturing plant is a test facility. 
Located in a warehouse on the University of Arizona campus, it's where engineers recreate the industry's water problems so they can fix them. So here is a typical 200 millimeter polisher looks like. At the bottom is the rotating pad. Chemical engineer Ting Sun gives me a tour of the polishing room, lined with various sizes of flat, round silicon wafers. And when we're ready, we're going to bring the head down and the wafer will touch the pad. All of them are rotating, so they're going to do the polish work. Polishers spin the silicon wafers against a pad and a chemical mix known as slurry, polishing each layer of circuitry and then rinsing it with ultra-pure water. Sun has focused her research on engineering better pads. By doing that, we can use less chemicals, so we dump less chemical into the environment, so that helps a lot. And also, by using less of chemical, we also use less water to rinse it. Sun is schooled in a practice called design for the environment, a strategy that guides the center's operations. Farhang Shabman directs the engineering research center. Design for environment it basically means that those who are in charge of developing new processes will have the environmental, not only environmental thinking, but also the tools and techniques of environmental assessment in their way of doing research. The center's full name is SRC Semitech Engineering Research Center for Environmentally Benign Semiconductor Manufacturing. Under Shabman's leadership, it's grown to include nine U.S. universities since its 1996 launch. Probably the legacy of this center is showing and proving by many, many examples that environmental approach to technology not only makes sense, not only it reduces cost, it may be the only way that future manufacturing is done. Computer chip makers watch this center closely for new technologies, and it's easy to understand why. Many semiconductor manufacturing plants are located in the water-strapped cities of the southwest. One manufacturing plant uses anywhere between 2 to 4 million gallons of very, very pure water, we call it ultra-pure water, per day. And that, on the average, is roughly equivalent to the water usage of a city of maybe 40,000, 50,000 people. Shadman guides me past a room with engineers dressed head to toe in what they call clean room suits, which protect the research from outside impurities. Just like surgery, semiconductor manufacturing requires a sterile environment. Okay, what you see here is what we call a pilot plant, a water pilot plant. And it is very unique because it essentially resembles the water purification plants of semiconductor manufacturing except that everything is in a smaller scale and everything is research development oriented. So we can change things, things that you cannot do in the real manufacturing. So what we're looking at right here are different stations where the water goes through purification process, water softeners, carbon filters. And that's because the water that's needed in the semiconducting industry needs to be so pure, purer than any water anywhere. Yes, because the wafer that is being cleaned is already very clean. You are trying to remove very, very small traces of impurity. So if water has any contaminants in it, it will be uh, harmful. We cannot tolerate any bacteria, live or dead, it doesn't matter, because of the fact that the bacteria typically have some of the trace elements in them, like uh, phosphorus, like 
carbon. These traces of these compounds will change the electrical properties of the silicon wafer. And that could lead to defective computer chips and ultimately product recalls. So chemical engineer Dreen Yen has been developing a new water sensor that immediately detects when a silicon wafer is clean so rinsing can stop, saving millions of gallons of water a day. Environmental concern, uh, environmental issue, and uh, how the mankind, uh, the civilization can survive depend on what can we do and how can we approach it. So I think it's very exciting, you know, it's very important, meaningful work. The water sensor developed by Yen and his colleagues is already on the market and was named 2009 Product of the Year by SEMI, a global association for microelectronics and other industries. Again, Farhang Shadman. We want to make sure that manufacturing, and particularly high-technology manufacturing, is maintained and retained, kept in the United States. And if you do not solve some of these environmental issues and some of these resource issues, we stand the risk of losing that manufacturing to other areas. The center has now spun off five startup companies, and its environmental technologies are being applied outside semiconductor manufacturing and electronics, including the medical and pharmaceutical industries. For Living on Earth, I'm Lori Howell in Tucson, Arizona. Lori Howell reported this story for the Global Water Challenge, a co-production of IEEE Spectrum Magazine and the Directorate of Engineering of the National Science Foundation. is more serious than a hawk on the hunt. But sometimes, as writer Mark Seth Linder observes, birds of prey become birds that play, whether they want to or not. The birds of prey have begun their passage. Bottled up by bad weather, they wait, and then, upon the freshened air, a hurricane of hawks roars through. Goshawk and broadwing, roughleg and redtail, all are here. So are the falcons. Merlin, with that Prussian dueling scar across his eye and thousand-yard stare. Kestrel, hovering above the marshland, all bright feathers, formidable beyond her size. A peregrine cutting across the shallowing sun, almost transparent in the penetrating light of late afternoon. While all the small that walk, that fly, that crawl, that climb, quake with dread, predators prey, prey flees. This morning we had a sharp shin. He too must feed, and the songbirds fear this little hawk with reason. He may not succeed every time, but he tries, sitting in plain sight on a naked branch while everyone hides, except the jays. One by one by one, blue jays alight on the fork of the very same tree. A lethal error in judgment seems to lead them close, closer, too close, blasting from his perch the sharp he strikes, the spurs of his talon scalpel sharp, his feet spread like fangs. Twisting, he turns and dives, head first, half upside down, dogging the nearest jay, a tail feather's whiff behind, the blue jay screaming blood and murder, escapes just barely and comes right back for more and more. Each time that blinding terror, each time the narrow escape, each jay taking his turn as if they want to be eaten, suicide by hawk. And then I understood. The blue jays are playing a game. 
When we ride the cyclone careening toward the bottom at an angle sure to jump those roller-coasting tracks, we scream, we love it, we ride that ride again. This is how the Blue Jays play it. The hawk does not, but then, not his turf, not his rules. One guess who tired first? Prey plays. Predators gnash their teeth. Smart money's on the game. Mark Seth Linder writes the column Salt Marsh Diary. To see photographs and find out more, go to our website, LOE.org. Coming up, one man's trash becomes another man's windmill. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Time to catch up on comments from you, our listeners. Some of you had sharp words about our coverage of the resignation of the White House's Green Jobs Advisor, Van Jones. Among them was Kenneth from Dallas, who listens to our podcast. He writes that he usually enjoys our show, but found that report partisan. He writes, Your one-sided portrayal of the Van Jones resignation bothered me. I do not think he should have been part of our government, and I'm concerned about having unvetted czars in high positions. And ecologist Paul Rogers of Utah State University thought our report on sudden aspen decline painted too sad a picture. He says, though some older trees are dying, in most places, healthy young sprouts are replacing them. That's contrary to what a Forest Service pathologist told us. Our interview with the renegade lunch lady who serves up nutritious school meals had many of you asking for seconds. Charlotte Muller hears us on WAMC out of Kingston, New York. I am a student at the Culinary Institute of America who has decided that I want to make my mission in life to reconnect Americans with their food and a healthier way of looking at food. I would love to be a cook who went into a school and got a farmer to give their food to a school and then helped the cooks in the school learn to prepare it. Sign me up. And finally, a listener who says it's time for some straight talk about that talking seal. George Swallow heard our story about Hoover the Seal on Maine's public broadcasting network. He liked it, but says we got a couple things wrong. And he ought to know. Swallow was 17 when his father, also named George Swallow, brought the orphaned pup home. My uncle, he's a lobsterman, lived down from us uh, about a half a mile down the road. He called my father and said um, that his dog had found a baby seal. My father was... uh, Somebody who always, you know, took care of stray animals and hurt birds and like that. So my uncle called him. They went down, and they found a seal. It, it was tiny. It was about a foot long. Uh, and they looked around, and they found its mother had been shot. So um, my father brought the seal home, and uh, they put it in the bathtub. That's the first time I saw it. I, I, I think I came back from school that day. My <laughs> mother says, come and look at this. And uh, 
there was a seal in the bathtub. <laughs> and I'm guessing eventually he got too big for the tub. What then? Oh, yeah. We have a pond in the backyard, a freshwater pond. And uh, my father would take him down to that, and he would go in and swim around and come out. And uh, we set up a little pup tent so he could get out of the, the sun or stay in there at night, and he did that. A, a pup tent. How appropriate for a seal pup. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And there's a, Bowdoin College had a marine biology um, department, and they got a marine biologist to uh, come up and take a look at the seal, and uh, he said he was okay in the pond, and he just needed uh, probably some vitamin supplements and some salt tablets that they gave my father. Now, Hoover's famous for being the talking seal. Did Hoover talk to you? Did you hear Hoover talking back then? Nope. I never heard Hoover talk back then. My father thought he heard the seal sort of say something that almost sounded like speech, but he didn't really tell anybody because he thought they'd think he was a little nutty. <laughs> <laughs> and the vocalization uh, didn't start for a few years after he was at the aquarium, but as soon as we heard it, we knew where he got it from because he was saying things in my father's accent, the exact same thing as my father repeated over and over to him. <laughs> Like, hello there, and come over here, and get out of there, and, and the hey, hey, stupid. He'd always <laughs> talk to the seal, constantly, but he, he never said the seal talked back to him <laughs> until later. Did he, did he sort of just become like a, like a pet, sort of like a, a dog with flippers, or what? Yeah, actually, it was quite a bit like a, having a pet dog. And actually, that's one of the stories my father would talk about, because the, the seal would ride in his, his Jeep. I think he had a Jeep then. It might have been a scout, but... Anyway, one of those jeepy vehicles. Uh, the seal would sit in the passenger seat, and one day he was uh, up in the local town up here, Brunswick, and uh, stopped at a stoplight. Some kids on a street corner looked in the, at the jeep, and one goes to the look, look, that dog has got no ears. <laughs> <laughs> now, now your dad tried to return Hoover to uh, to the wild before uh, Hoover ended up at the aquarium, right? How did right. that go? Um, yeah, he was getting fairly big. He was oh, a couple feet long at, at this point. And uh, my father took him down in a skiff and put him in the water. Uh, he swam around. He liked that great. And uh, my father started to come back in with the skiff and thinking maybe he would, you know, just go and find some other seals. But he came swimming over and just flipped right into the boat. <laughs> One of the people my father worked for got a hold of the aquarium, and uh, they uh, agreed to take the seal. Uh, now, your your father's uh, not with us anymore, correct? No, no, he passed away in 97. And apparently your your family decided to, to memorialize uh, Hoover along with your, your dad's memorial, correct? Yep. On his headstone, um, there's an engraving from a photograph that uh, it was in the Boston Globe when they took Hoover down to uh, the aquarium. Uh, my father's holding Hoover, and uh, Hoover's... They could say he's kissing him. He's giving a little nudge in the cheek. Sweet. George Swallow, thank you very much for helping us get the, the story of Hoover the Seal straight. I, I want to say now this story has the official seal of approval, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, I guess it does.
All right. Well, thanks to everyone for being in touch. We're always glad to hear from you. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, that's comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. Or you can call the listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. In 2001, famine ravaged the sub-Saharan country of Malawi. William Kamkwamba and his family survived, but the suffering left him determined to find a way to protect them from drought and hunger. William was just 14. He had to drop out of school because his family couldn't afford the fees. So William hit the books on his own to learn how to build a windmill using whatever he could find. Now William and journalist Brian Mueller have written a book, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. William, Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And William, why did you decide a windmill would keep your family from facing another famine? So what needed to be done to harvest enough food, we need to start doing irrigation. But the only way to start irrigation is to have a certain type of machine that can be pumping water to irrigate our crops. So it's when I decided that if I can build one of this machine, I can be able to do that. So tell me about actually making this. Where, where did you get the parts? I, I imagine in rural Malawi, you can't just go to the hardware store and say, hey, I need the parts for a windmill. Where, where did things come from? So at the time when I was making my windmill, I didn't even have money that I can use to go to the hardware and buy materials. So my materials, I found them at a, a junkyard. Every time I go to the junkyard to look for my materials, I didn't have any specific material to look for, but I was just picking up any piece of uh, metal, thinking that maybe I'll use it. And then uh, when I was doing that, a lot of people were laughing at me, thinking that I'm going crazy because they say that it is not normal for a normal person going to a junkyard, collecting all the garbages and then telling people that I'm trying to build a windmill. And uh, uh, Brian? Yeah, I was just going to give a little bit of background and, and brag on William a little bit. Um, you know, when he was going to the library with reading these books, and the first one was this uh, British physics book called uh, Explaining Physics, William really didn't know how to read English that well, but it had these really beautiful uh, illustrations and diagrams, and he was able to basically take these diagrams and where it said like figure 10 uh, he would look into the text and he would learn the English words and basically was able to teach himself basic physics and he was really interested in bicycle dynamos and and how they worked because people used dynamos to power their headlamps on their bicycles and so he would always go around and he would ask how does this work why is it producing light and nobody knew and so he realized that you can actually take the wires out of the lamp uh, itself and they produce kind of a shock and he would kind of shock himself while he was spinning it. And it was able to figure out that you can ram these wires into the AC plug of a radio. And he saw this other book with the windmills on the cover. It said, like, you know, windmills produce electricity through spinning motion. He kind of put these two things together, the dynamo with a spinning motion of the, of the generator inside and the turbine as a generator. Uh-huh. And that's what kind of brought it all together. So you're picking through this stuff in the junkyard. Everybody thinks you're basically crazy. Um, you, you can't go to school. And yet you're finding stuff that starts to sort of kind of look like it could be a windmill. 
Yeah, when I was going through the junkyard, I was just wandering around in tall grasses looking for any kind of a piece, putting them together. Once I was picking up pieces of metal, I was examining it before I, I take it home, thinking how exactly am I going to use this type of piece here. Then what did you use for the blades? What were the rotors, the blades? For the blades, I used the um, PVC pipes, which I melting them over the fire, and then I stretched them. Uh, for the shaft of the windmill, I used the shock absorber to make a shaft, and then using an old bicycle frame for the frame of the of the windmill. And reading this is just amazing. I mean, you didn't even have a drill. So to, to make the holes, you had to, what, you, you, you were heating up a nail and poking it through the plastic? Is that right? Yeah, for the drill, I was using the the nail. I was hitting the nail, and then when the nail gets hot, I'll be driving hot nail into a PVC pipe. It was a slow process because by the time I'm picking it up to the place where I want to drill, the nail has cooled, so I, I had to learn back and forth. So melted pieces of PVC pipe for the blades, a tractor fan from a tractor engine for the the hub, um, hooked up to an old shock absorber for the crankshaft. Uh, Then what? Then you need something that's actually going to make the juice, make the, the electricity. Where did that come from? After I found all these things, I remained with one piece which I couldn't find at the junkyard. Uh, that piece was a bicycle dynamo, a generator to generate electricity. Uh, likely enough, my friend Gibbert uh, bought it for me. So when he bought that uh, dynamo, I was able to uh, to generate electricity when I hooked it up to the windmill. And then came the moment of truth, where you put this on top of a tower, which you also made... Tell me about that. Tell me about the time when you first got this thing spinning. Yeah, um, when the, the, the blades were spinning and then the, the dynamo generating electricity and then the light bulb came on from the, the windmill and the people started clapping hands and then there was a crowd of people uh, watching. There was kids and then the kids pushing each other to for a better look. For me, it was like, wow, this is the time now. I was very happy because... I have been working on the project for quite a long time and then I was like uh, proving to people that uh, what I've been working on, it wasn't craziness, but uh, it was something useful which can be generating electricity. For me, it was one of the exciting moments of my life. So while you were rummaging through the junkyard, uh, people thought you were crazy. But once you had a light, and uh, radio and things like this in your house, what did people in the village of Wimbe begin to think of you then? After I did all this, uh, people started coming to charge their um, mobile phones. There was also another time when uh, we experienced the uh, drought in 2005, and then what was happening was that people started pointing to my window and said that uh, this is a witch tower is chasing away the lane. It's not science. Wait a minute, people were blaming your windmill for the fact that there was no rain? Yeah, because they were seeing that the wind started blowing. When the wind is blowing, it was blowing the clouds, and then my windmill was spinning so fast. That's why people say that, no, it's this machine that is something magic. Is Which tower is blowing away the uh, rain clouds? 
Hmm. Uh, Brian, uh, you, you've covered uh, uh, Africa a lot as a journalist. Uh, give us some sense of the kind of mindset that was there was at work there when people saw a windmill and thought it was chasing away the clouds and, and causing a, a drought. Uh, the way it was explained to me in, in Malawi is uh, there are too many problems for God and man alone, so there exists this third invisible world of magic that can kind of that helps them along. And so William, uh, when he starts collecting this garbage, I mean, not only people they say he's crazy or that he's smoking marijuana or whatever, you know, he's talking insane. He's saying, "I'm going to create electricity from wind," and they said, "Only a witch can do that." You know, good luck. You know, William, it, it occurs to me, you, you brought a, a light, a physical light, into your house, but it seems to me you also you brought a, a different kind of light to your, your village, um, the light of uh, using science. I've just noticed that nowadays the mindset of people have really changed. Where uh, before they are thinking that they, they cannot do anything in terms of science, it's only people from the West or from European people can be doing something for the uh, science. So. That type of mindset for lots of people have really changed. Brian, do you recall when you first heard or learned about uh, what it was William was doing? Yeah, clearly. Prior to meeting William, I'd been a reporter in, in Africa for about five years, and uh, most of that time was spent uh, covering the war in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And uh, the whole time I was working in, in Congo, Africans themselves always ask us, why do you guys always cover our bad news? Why, why do you never cover our good news? And I see this Wall Street Journal article about a guy in Malawi who builds windmills out of garbage. And uh, I said, man, this is that story. This is the story I've been looking to tell. And to me, it's this is the way you save Africa. You don't throw money at it. You don't throw food aid at it. You go and find these guys, and we need to look, we need to comb that continent, and we need to find guys like this and not give them money, but just give them little slivers of opportunity and lift them up. William, do I understand correctly that in your native language, there's no word for windmill? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I used the word magetan hepo, so it just means electric wind. Electric wind. That's got a nice ring to yeah. it. Yeah. So that's yeah. how you describe it to people when they ask, what is that? You said electric wind. Hmm. Brian Mueller and William Kamkwamba co-authored The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. Thank you both very much for your time. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. William Kamkwamba's going back to school at a South African Academy for Future African Leaders. He's already started a club there for fellow inventors. He calls it the Doers Club. Can't wait to see what he does next. On the next Living on Earth, tiny architects teach us new ways to ventilate buildings. The really interesting trick that termites uh, have done is they've learned a way to exploit turbulent wind energy that for a long time wind engineers have kind of uh, looked down upon. Green design inspired by termites. Next time on Living on Earth. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Bolinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Annie Glosser, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Sriskandaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Quincy Campbell and Nirja Parak. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. 
You can find us anytime at LOE.org. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, and the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, the Rockefeller Foundation, and its campaign for American workers. More at rockfound.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.